up to this point. The singing has been amazing. I want to thank uh, Jeffrey for the prayer on my behalf. My prayer also is that what I have to say will be according to God's word and that will uh, glorify him. This morning, we're going to continue our, our April studies or series on uh, characters of the Bible this morning. And we're going to continue that with Jacob. The first verse that I want to look at this morning is Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 21, because I think this tells us a lot about who Jacob was. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was a, di- when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. So as we see Jacob's life, we see it as a life that was a faithful life to God. But what we have to understand about Jacob is that it wasn't always that way. If there was anybody that would be similar to who we are today and the struggles that we face today, it was Jacob. Jacob struggled. He did a lot of things that he shouldn't have done, and he faced the consequences of that. But I think we can gain a lot from seeing that somebody in Hebrews chapter 11, what we consider is kind of the faith chapter, where it names all of these men who are what we like to call the heroes of faith struggled. And I think that can help us in our walk with God and our, our struggles through life to know that even though we struggle, even though we have issues and sins and temptations, that we can still have God and be faithful to him. And I think that's a wonderful lesson. And really the lesson that we kind of got from every one of these just about this month. So before we get started, there's a few lessons I want to talk about this morning that I kind of pulled out of the, the life of Jacob. And some of those maybe you haven't thought of. Some of them were, were new to me. I've read through the story of Jacob several times, but I've never really done the in-depth study that I was, I was able to do this time. And a lot of things stuck out to me that I hadn't really thought about before. And hopefully these things are things that will help you in your Christian walk. I know they've helped me. But before we get to those lessons, I want to do just a quick overview of Jacob's life. And if you know, if you know about Jacob, there's a lot written about him. From Genesis 25 to Genesis 49, we basically have the life story of Jacob. And I'm going to try to do that in about three to five minutes. So if you'll bear with me, we'll get into some of that a little, bit, a little more in depth here in just a little bit. But I, again, I just want to give you that overview real quick. Now, when we think about Jacob, I think the story of Jacob comes really starts long before we even get to his name being even mentioned. And that's Genesis chapter 22, where we see God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says in verse 17 that in blessing, I will bless thee and in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven and of the sand, which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the, the gates of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. I really feel this is the start of Jacob, of the story of Jacob. Because Abraham is actually the grandfather of Jacob. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has twin sons, Esau and Jacob. And that's that's a covenant that is passed on down to Isaac, passed on here to Jacob, as we'll read here in just a little bit. But the story of Jacob is one that begins at birth with what we see as a struggle. And we see that he is, like we said, a twin. 
His brother Esau and him are about to be born. They're struggling within their mother, Rebecca, and she gets a little concerned. And in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 25, it says, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be younger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. You know, that's not what normally would happen. Usually the older son has the birthright. Usually the older son is the leader of the family, the spiritual leader, the person who's in charge. But that's not what God is saying here. God says that it's going to be the opposite, that the younger son will be the leader, that the older son will serve the younger. So as we see that Rebecca understands this, she knows this. And it almost seems to me like Jacob even knows this at birth, because when Esau is born, he's the firstborn. He's the elder. He comes out of his mother's womb and on his heel is Jacob's hand, holding on to it, grasping for it. It's almost like it's there's so many little interesting things about the life of Jacob, and it seems to start right at birth. But, you know, I think as we go through Jacob's life, I think that there are four periods of time that we can really look at Jacob's life and see a good separation. Four definite periods that we can learn a lot from. The first is his life with his parents, Isaac and Rebekah in Canaan. During this portion of life, we see Jacob as a deceiver, a person who relies on himself to make sure that he gets what he wants and what he thinks he deserves. He takes advantage. We know the story. He takes advantage of Esau, his brother. His brother has been working out in the fields and he's hungry and he feels like he's going to die. I can tell you about three times a day I feel this way. And I would sell just about everything for a little bit of food. I was starving. And I have to wonder, Esau, how much did he really care about that birthright in the first place? Because lentil stew on top of that. I mean, come on. It doesn't sound very appetizing. Maybe a pizza or something, but... Lentil stew. He sells his birthright to Jacob. Jacob sees this as an opportunity. And he takes advantage of his brother. And again, I'm not saying he's the only one at fault here. Esau should have cared a little bit more about that birthright. But Jacob, I mean, what's a pot of stew? Let's let's share, right? But Jacob takes advantage of his brother here, right? But also in this period of time, we also know that his mother, Rebecca, kind of pushes him in the direction to try to get the blessing also from his father, Isaac. Isaac is old in age. He's, he's getting to where he can't see. And his mother helps him to deceive his father into taking the blessing also from his brother Esau. And that kind of leads to the next portion that we're going to talk about because Esau obviously does not like this. Esau hates his brother and wants to kill him. So Rebecca says, hey, you've got to go. And that leads to the next portion in his life in Syria with Laban and his family, his uncle there. So this is an, uh, the, the next portion that we see, the next division of his life that I kind of broke this down into. But you see, as he is going over to, to spare his own life, he has a dream. And in that dream, there's a ladder and it, it ascends from earth to heaven on that ladder going up and down are angels. And at the top of that ladder is, is the Lord God. And essentially what this is, is the renewed covenant. That through him and through his seed, a great nation would be brought about. And through that lineage, the, all the people of the earth would be blessed. 
so that's a pretty important portion of his life. And we'll get into that a little bit more later, as we said. But as he goes on, he makes his journey to Laban. And during this time, the deceiver is deceived. He works for seven years. He sees Rachel and he thinks, man, I, I've got to marry her. So he works, he makes a deal with Laban. He says, for seven years, I'll work for you if you'll give me your, your daughter Rachel's hand in marriage. And that's exactly what happens. But Laban has a different idea going into this. And he deceives Jacob into marrying his, uh, his other daughter, Leah, which is not what Jacob wanted at all. So he gets over that pretty quick. He says, I'll work for you another seven years if you'll give me the hand of Rachel. And he does just that. He marries Rachel. Now he's got two wives. Starts, they start, start a family. During this time, we also see that Rachel's womb is closed up. She cannot have children. But through this time, what I want us to understand is that God did prosper Jacob. God prospered Jacob and allowed him to go back to this next portion of time of building his family his own family back in Canaan and starting to, to, to fulfill that prophecy that God had made or that covenant that God had made with them. You know, on his way back, he, he has to cross through Esau's land and Esau is his own man now. And he's got a, a big army of people and it scares Jacob and he has to cross through this, this land that's Esau's. But on his way, before that happens, he has to wrestle with a man and he wrestles all night with this person. This person touches the socket of his hip. It comes out, but Jacob's not going to let go. He's going to persevere through that. He holds on. He says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And that's exactly what we see happen. And he changes and this man or angel or maybe a prototype of Jesus changes his name to Israel. He becomes Israel now. He is no longer Jacob. He becomes Israel. Also during this time, Benjamin is born. And during that birth, his favorite wife, Leah or Rachel, dies. But we also know the story of Joseph. This is where the idea of the story of Joseph kind of takes over. Where Joseph is his favorite son. And again, we'll get into this a lot, a lot deeper here in just a little bit. But Joseph is his favorite son. It causes a lot of issues with his older brothers. They get mad at him. They sell him into slavery. Joseph goes to Egypt. He rises to second in power. There's a great famine on the land. Luckily, Joseph, through his dreams and interpreting those dreams through God's help, is able to allow Egypt to, to make it through that. And the famine causes us to go move to this next portion of Jacob's or Israel's life at this time. And that's his migration to Egypt. And that's where he passes away. So again, a very short, very quick overview of Jacob's life. But through that study of, of mine and through this, this life of Jacob, there are several lessons that I have, I have thought a lot about over the last month or two. And I want to share those with you. And again, I hope they, they encourage you as they have me. But the first lesson I want to mention this morning is that a parent's examples make a difference. The way a parent lives their lives in the eyes of their children makes all the difference. And it's something that I need to learn. And maybe that's why I pulled this out of this lesson, because I need to be better. But what we understand from Jacob's life is that the way a parent raises their children 
makes all the difference. And that's something we have to fix if it's not on the right path. If we're not living the life that we need to be, we need to fix that now. But we can see this throughout Jacob's life. And I, I think we can safely say that Isaac and Rebecca were good parents. And I think we can safely say that they made a lot of good decisions. But there's one decision that I want to look at this morning that I think was passed down to Jacob when he grew up. You know, one way that, that we can see that they might have made a little bit of a mistake was that they played favoritism. I can't imagine my two daughters knowing that I loved one of them better than the other. I can't imagine that at all. It just amazes me. But that was something that was very obvious in these children's lives. Genesis 25 and verse 28, it says, And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And maybe there's several reasons for that. I know that it says because he did, I guess he liked venison a lot. But you know, Esau was the manly man. He was the man that would go out and he would hunt. He would, he would work in the fields. He was out there doing the manly stuff. Yeah, I mean, Isaac loved that. Isaac loved that. But then you have Jacob and he was kind of the tent dweller. He kind of stayed around the tents and maybe that gave him the opportunity to build that relationship with his mother a little deeper. But there were obvious, there was obvious favoritism when it came to these two boys. And I can't imagine the dissension between those two boys that that may have caused. I can't imagine the feeling. I can't imagine me knowing that my mom loved my brother more than me. Or that my dad loved me more than my brother. I can't imagine how that would shape how I act and the decisions that I make. It definitely would. It would change my decisions. It would change how I lived. And I think we see that in here. And I think this is something that we obviously see that Jacob took hold of. Because throughout his life, we see him playing favorites an awful lot with his wives. We think about Leah and we think about Rachel. And we know that, that Jacob's intention was to marry Rachel in the first place. He never chose Leah. He was deceived into that. So you kind of get where that comes from. But you know, he works seven years. He has this wife, Leah. He's dedicated to her now. He works another seven years. He has this wife, Rachel. He should be dedicated to her now. But you know what? He had a favorite. Genesis 29 and verse 30, it says, And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah. And he served with him yet seven other years. There were no qualms about it. He loved Rachel more than Leah. And this caused issues between the two. We see a relationship between two sisters that should have been a sisterly relationship that was torn apart. And if you look at the story of these two women, you see that they didn't have the best relationship. You know, Leah was able to have children. That made Rachel jealous because she wanted to please Jacob. But Leah also knew that Rachel was his favorite, so she didn't like that. That caused problems, didn't it? It caused issues. But you know, his favoritism didn't stop there. You think about his own children. He obviously had a favorite, and that was Joseph. Genesis 37 and verse 3, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And we know what this led to. We know that Joseph was his favorite. 
And because of that, his brothers hated him so much that they wanted to kill him. Luckily, they didn't. They sold him into slavery, if that's much better. But you know, God used that. And just like Justin said a couple of weeks ago, God's plan will always come about. But they sold him. And he had to go to Egypt. That's what that favoritism caused. And I feel that, in my opinion, I think that's some kind of a learned behavior. Something that they that he possibly got from his parents. That maybe he felt that was okay. But you know, I know a lot of us don't have that issue today. I know we love our children all the same. I would hope we would. But you know, we make so many decisions in our lives that our children witness every day. And we have to make sure that those decisions are based on God's word. Because our example is going to mold who they grow up to be. I remember growing up and thinking, I'm never going to be like my dad. And Jana is always like, you're just like your dad. Like, don't say that. And then she gets mad if I call her Mary Beth. But, you know, we're... That's just how it is. We grow up to be like our parents. We spend so much time with our parents growing up that how could we not take things from them? How could we not be molded by that example? And as parents, we have to understand that our example makes all the difference in who our children grow up to be. I think of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. It says, Father, provoke not your children to anger. Listen to this. Lest they be discouraged. Are we as parents living lives that are going to push our kids away from God when they grow up? Are the decisions that we're making every day going to cause our children to grow up to leave the church? And again, I know. Children make their own decisions. They grow up and they make their own decisions. And that's not always, that's not something we can control. But we as parents need to be making sure we're living lives that push them in that other direction. And hopefully when they get old, they hold on to those things. They hold on to those decisions and they hold on to living a godly life. You know, I think of also Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. It says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Our lives should be an example to our children that God is first in everything we do. In every aspect of our lives, God is number one. So when our children grow up, they can't look back and say, My parents didn't serve God like they should have. Our, parents, our children should be able to grow up and say they tried their best to do what God would have them to do and make decisions based on God's word. He goes on to say in verse six, and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart and they shall and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shall talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house. And on thy gates is the word of God what directs our lives. Because, yeah, we can talk to him about it. And we can read the word of God to him every day. But if we are not living that life, what good is that going to do? We have to live a life where we can honestly say we tried to serve God. And, you know, there's going to be times when we make bad choices. 
Hopefully not as bad as playing favorites like that, but we're going to make bad decisions. But what a great opportunity to say, son or daughter, I made a mistake. That's not what God would have me to do. The way we raise our children molds them. And guess what? They're the future of the church. In 40 years, they're going to be the ones making the decisions. They're going to be the ones making sure that people are out preaching the word of God. Or they're not. We've got to do our part as parents. We've got to make sure we're pushing a godly life. Or not pushing, but showing them what a godly life should be. And how that should be lived. I think the next lesson that we can learn goes, it's pretty close to this one, is that we reap what we sow. When we, this same idea applies here with our children, what we just talked about. If we live godly examples, hopefully our children will grow up to be molded in that and will follow God's word also. But this applies to every single decision that we make in our lives. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. And sometimes that's going to be good things. Sometimes that's going to be bad things. Really, it's how we live our lives. Are we sowing the worldly things? Are we sowing the self, selfish things? Or are we sowing the godly things? Because we will reap the consequences of that, whether good or bad. I think Jacob, again, his life really points this out. And this rule plays out in his life over and over. When Jacob planted the, the bad seed, the negative seed... There were negative consequences. When he planted that godly seed, there were good, godly consequences from that. And I know we think of consequences as a bad thing usually, but consequences are either good or bad. They can be either. And it's really up to us and how we're sowing that seed. You know, as we talked about earlier, God established before the birth of the twins, Esau and Jacob, that the second born would be the leader. And I think that was something that Jacob knew. I think Rebecca shared that with Jacob. I think, I think Rebecca pushed that. Obviously, she did as we uh, talk about him going in and deceiving his father. Rebecca was behind that. But you see, Jacob was the type that he wanted to take that into his own hands. He wanted to make sure that that happened. He wanted to make sure that he was able to get that done. You know, we think about... That same issue that we talked about earlier, Genesis 25 and 29, where, where Esau comes in and he's, a, he's about to die, obviously, and he, Jacob just happens to be making that stew. And in verse 29, it says, And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with the same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. You see, Jacob took advantage of his brother. He saw his brother in a weak state. And again, this wasn't all Jacob's fault. Esau should have been a little, a little better about holding on to that, right? But Jacob saw an opportunity to take advantage, and that's exactly what he did. Instead of being the, the brother, he said, hey, come in. I've got, I've got plenty for you and me. We can, we can share this. No, he says, if I give you this, you're going to sell me your birthright. And Esau says, well, what good's a birthright going to do to me if I'm dead? Right? Jacob saw an opportunity and he took advantage of his brother. But it didn't stop there because later on in the story, as we kind of talked a little bit earlier, 
His father's ready to give Esau the blessing. Rebecca knows that. And she says, she tells Jacob, we've got to take care of this. We've got to get you that blessing. So I'm just going to say Esau must have been a very hairy man. It talks about him being hairy, but his father can't see. So the way they trick him is they put sheepskin over him. His father touches his arm. I'm glad I don't have that problem. That's a bad problem. But you know, he deceives him. His father can't see. And guess what happens? Isaac gives Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. So now, this has nothing to do with Esau. Esau did, this was no fault of Esau. This was completely Rebekah and Jacob making the decision to deceive Isaac. And they, and that's exactly what happened. But I want you to know, these things that he did were wicked, and there were consequences to those things. The next thing we see, Rebecca saying, "You better get out of here. You better go to your uncle Laban and hide, because guess what? Esau hates him now. So a, a relationship between two brothers is broken up. Esau wants to kill him." So he's in fear of his life. And now he has to flee his home and go far away. And during that time, Rebecca, his mother, who he loved and whom she loved, she dies. So he never sees his mother again. Imagine the consequences of these actions. Because he didn't let God fulfill the plan on, through his way. He tried to take it into his own hands. And he chose a wicked path. He made bad decisions. And there were bad consequences from that. But not only that, we talked a little bit about this too. But when he gets over, when he gets over to Laban and his home, he's the deceived, he's the deceived now because Laban's playing the same game. In Genesis 29 and verse 25, it says, And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did I not serve thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? So he gets over to Laban and Laban deceives him now. And you know what I found really interesting about this whole situation? Is that, and take this for what it's worth. But Jacob is deceived exactly the same way as he deceived his father. His father was blind. He couldn't see. Genesis 27, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his eldest son. And we know that Esau didn't come, it was Jacob. So they play on the idea that Isaac couldn't see and they tricked him. But then you have this story of Laban setting up the marriage. It's dark. The marriage is consummated. The next morning the sun rises and it's not Rachel. It's not Rachel, it's Leah. Kind of got a dose of his own medicine there, didn't he? But you see, this whole idea that we reap what we sow is definitely something that we've got to be careful of. And it's definitely something that we've experienced. We've made decisions in our lives and those brought bad consequences. Sometimes the consequences of those actions are things that we have to live with for the rest of our lives. We reap what we sow. You know, Job understood this. 
Job 4 verse 8, it says, Even as I have seen that thou, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Proverbs 11 verse 18, it says, The wicked worketh the deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. We reap what we sow. The decisions we make, whether good or bad, will have consequences. And we need to strive to live by God's word so that we're making more of those good decisions. Those those decisions that will reap those godly consequences will be more prevalent in our lives. You know, Galatians 6 and verse 7, it's more than just life on this earth, too. It's more than just consequences that we're going to receive while we live here on this earth. It's consequences that can last an eternity. Galatians 6 and verse 7, it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. In other words, we're not going to trick God. We can't plant a cherry tree and expect oranges to pop out. It's not going to happen. It says, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially to them who are of the household of faith. We're going to reap what we sow, and that reaches far beyond this life. Those are consequences that can last an eternity. So we need to make sure that we're living a godly life that's according to His Word so that we can reap life everlasting instead of sowing those wicked things in this life and reaping destruction. We've got to be very careful about that. The next lesson that I think we can learn comes from the the time in his life where he has that dream. And it's a dream that changes in my opinion, his life forever. So as he's leaving, after he has deceived Isaac, and he has the birthright, he has the blessing, he's leaving, he's fleeing for his life, he has this dream. And we see in this dream, it says in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 28, it says, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it, to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land, for I, am, I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. So we see again that renewed covenant that we read at the very first of this lesson. That covenant that he made with Abraham, this is that renewed covenant. That through Jacob's seed, a great nation would be brought about. Through that, all people of the earth would be blessed. That's because of Jesus Christ. But I feel that this dream changes who Jacob is. I feel that a man that once relied on himself to make things happen, a man that relied on tricking other people and deceiving people to get what he wanted, now has a different direction. Now has a life that he can rely on God because he has a promise from God. That promise that God will bring him back. That promise that through him, a great nation will be brought about. He has something more. To put his faith in. He really believes it now. You know, we see God's love for man here. We see his love through this 
through this covenant made here, we see his love for each of us. And I think Jacob fully relied on that. Did he make mistakes? Yes, he still made mistakes. Did he make bad decisions? Yes. But it seemed like to me through the study of this that he was just a different person. And I really think he changed at this moment. And we see after this dream, as he woke up, he's, he's saying, you know, he was afraid. It says, how dreadful is this place? This is the place of the Lord. And then he makes a vow. In verse 20, it says, And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God, and this stone which I have set up, set up for a pillar shall be of God's house. And of all of that thou shalt give me, I will surely give thee unto, unto thee the tenth. So he has this dream. He, he hears this promise of God. And to me, it changes his direction. It changes who he is. We see in chapter 35, if you continue on in this story of Jacob 35, he, he indeed fulfills part of the vow that he made and he builds that altar to God in that very place. But you see more of a reliance on God. And I think one example of that is in Genesis chapter 33, right before he's about to meet with Esau and he's scared for his life. I want you to see his decision. I want you to see instead of depending on himself and trying to figure out a way to do this, he goes to God and he says in verse nine, and Jacob said, Oh God, my father, Abraham and God of my father, Isaac, the Lord, which says unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred. And I will deal with thee. I am not worthy of the least of the mercies of all and of all the truth, which thou hast showed unto thy servant for with my staff, I passed over this Jordan and now I'm become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him. Lest he will come and smite me and the mother with with the children. And thou sayest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. You see, he understood that God was with him. He went to God. He said, help me through this. And he understood the covenant. He could have faith that he was going to be okay. And, you know, I equate that to our lives. I equate that to how God can change who we are. How an encounter with God through his word can change our lives. You know, Ezekiel 36 and 26 it says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You see, God's word changes us. It changes who we are. And we understand that there are promises that God has made to us. That if we are obedient to those promises, that he will save us. And that changes who we are. That changes our direction. It causes us to not rely so much on the worldly things that we once relied on. It causes us to get away from those temptations and trust in the word of God and understand that God has made a promise that if we are obedient to him, we can have eternal life. If we're willing to submit to him, it changes us. I think of Matthew chapter four, where, <coughs> excuse me, where Jesus has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And he's hungry. And Satan comes, comes in and says, if you're hungry, 
change these breads of stone. And I want you to see Jesus, the perfect example. I want you to see his reaction to this. He says, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. See, that's our example. That we have a promise that through his word, we can live and we can flourish and we can have life everlasting. And that should change who we are. That should change our direction. That should change how we live and the decisions that we make. Because we can rely on the promise. Because God has never failed to come through. Not once. And just like Jacob was changed by that promise, we can be changed by that promise also. And let our lives be led by the word of God. And I think this leads right into the last, the last lesson that I want to talk about this morning. And this is when Jacob gets a new name. You know, this event takes, again, we've said this, this event takes place just before he's about to meet up with Esau. He wrestles, he wrestles with, with this person. And we read of that here in Genesis 32 and 24. It says, and Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of, de- of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint and he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, let, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou the power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, tell me, I pray thee thy name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou, thou dost ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of this place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. You see, Jacob gets a new name here. And you think about Jacob and you think about what names meant. They had meaning. Jacob means supplanter. And if you think back to a couple of verses that we talked about earlier, we talked about that. How in Esau, he talk, well, we didn't really talk about it, it was mentioned earlier. But Esau said he supplanted me two times. And basically what that means is he took what was rightfully mine. He took my place when it should have been mine. And we know he did that with a birthright. We know he did that with a blessing. We also know that he did that by making bad decisions. And you see, now his name's changed to Israel, which means prince of God or wrestle with God and prevailing. You see, this is a symbolic name change. It's more than just saying, I'm going to change your name. It's a symbolic name change. And what that symbolizes is that a once devious man, once a man that relied on himself, once a man that did things his own way, now has a promise from God that changes everything. That's what that name change meant. And that's what it meant to him. And I think about when we obey the gospel, when we hear the word of God, when we believe it, when we repent and we turn our lives around, when we confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God and we're buried with him in baptism, We arise a new creature. We're changed. We're different. And we have a new name. We're not just, I'm not just Noah anymore. I'm not that guy who relied on myself. I'm not the guy who trusted in myself. I'm not the guy who falls to my temptations all the time. I'm now the one who has a promise of God. 
I now have a new name. And that means Christ is in me now. I'm now a Christian. I now serve something bigger and better than myself. I now have a new name. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. It's more than just me now. Christ lives in me. My decisions aren't based on what I want. My decisions aren't based on what I feel. My decisions should be based on the word of God because that's who lives in me now, Jesus Christ. It says, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that was made possible because Jesus Christ, that one that was prophesied so long ago, that covenant that was made that through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a Messiah would be brought about so that we here today could be forgiven of our sins through the blood that was shed on the cross for us. You know, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It says, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So we just have a laundry list of all of these things that will keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. But I want you to see the next verse. It says, And such were some of you. Such were some of you. And every one of us sitting here today can say that we fell into one of those categories, if not many. That's who we used to be before we accepted Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. When you obey the gospel, you're washed, you're sanctified, and you're justified in the eyes of God through the blood of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never obeyed that gospel, this is your opportunity It's your opportunity to be washed, to be sanctified, to be justified. And to take on that new name. And to change your life and live it for God. Or maybe you're here and you've kind of turned your back on that. Or maybe you've walked away. Or maybe you're struggling with something that you know you can't do on your own. We can pray for you. We can pray with you. If you come to the front while we stand and sing the psalm that's been selected.